Well, good morning, Wildwood. My name is Dan Rober, and I have the pleasure of serving as community director here at Wildwood. Um, for those of you who don't know me, you may know me by a couple other names. For example, uh, Emily and Ethan and Hannah's dad, uh, because they have a habit of running around this place. They've kind of made this place their second home. They've grown up here between uh, preschool and spending a lot of time in the church office, uh, so they're all over the place. And uh, you also may know me as Sarah's husband. In fact, I was known as that for quite a while, uh, and uh, that's all right, uh, too. Uh, she's been here a lot longer than I have, uh, but it is a pleasure to acquaint myself with you, Dan. You can just call me Dan. That'd be fine. Yeah, uh, that works. A very happy Labor Day weekend to you as well. I don't know if you have great plans for Labor Day or not. I grew up in upstate New York, and in upstate New York, the school year doesn't actually start until the Wednesday following Labor Day. And so for us as a kid, Labor Day was just another day. We didn't have school anyway, so it wasn't a big deal. Uh, but then I went to college in Cedarville, Ohio, and they love Labor Day. Labor Day is huge for them. And the reason why is the guy who actually wrote the bill so that Labor Day would become a federal holiday was born in Cedarville, Ohio. And so they want to make a big deal about that. And so every year there's a parade and there's fireworks and there's a pancake breakfast, which is a big deal for a town of like 3,000 people. Uh, and so it's a huge deal. So uh, regardless, if you make a big deal or a small deal about it, I hope you're having a good Labor Day weekend. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we'll be spending a lot of our time this morning. This morning, we're going to have a standalone sermon. We just finished uh, a multi-week uh, series on uh, the mission and vision here at Wildwood, and it culminated with our vision celebration that we had last Sunday night. By the way, if you weren't able to be here with us for that vision celebration, I strongly recommend that you go check it out online. It's on YouTube. There's some great stories and interviews and videos that are contained in it. It's just a wonderful time of celebrating just a few of the ways that we saw God move and work here at Wildwood over the past year. So check that out. Next week, we're going to dive into a new series, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But today, we got a standalone sermon before we dive into it. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 10. Out of respect for the Word of God, I invite you to stand as I read from Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and it is a privilege to be able to open it, to read it together, and to probe its depths. So I pray that you would be over our time, 
that you would move as your word is expounded upon and explained, and that we would leave here having a fuller relationship with you and a fuller understanding of what you have done for us. I pray this to you, Father, in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Chances are, if you've watched a movie or a television show, you, you saw this common trope. Someone does something wrong, and then almost offhand, they say, oh, I'm going to hell for that. Now, that lackadaisical attitude is a topic for another day. That's certainly a problem. But I'm much more interested in uh, this logic. Their eternal destiny is connected to their actions in life. For, for them, Christianity is understood to be a collection of rules. Be this, do that. If you don't do that, then, well, you have hell to pay. Now, there's a certain measure of truth to this perspective. Just a couple chapters after what we read in Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, "...without holiness no one will see the Lord." The question, however is what is that holiness that we see in that verse. In contrast to almost all the other religions in the world today, the Christian's holiness is not based on what we do, because we know it could never be enough. Instead, the holiness that is required only comes through Christ's work on our behalf. This is the truth that distinguishes Christianity. Tim Keller, shout out to Pastor Bob, says it well. Religion operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. In contrast, the basic operating principle of the gospel is I am accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. The relationship was established before the requirements. The indicatives are stated before the imperatives. For Christians, the call for holy living is grounded in what Christ has already done. In fact, we can see that here in our passage this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As Christians, our holiness is both achieved by and grounded in the saving work of Christ. Any attempts at living a holy life apart from this truth would be futile. That's important, because I want to make a bold claim uh, this morning. It's something that I heard from a preacher all the way back in college, and living out my life in the decades following that have borne out the truth of this word. Here's what he said. Every kind of misguided and confused teaching on the subject of holy living can be traced back to a false or an inadequate view of the atonement. If we get the foundation wrong, we can't understand how to live it out in our lives. By the way, I've used the term atonement a couple times already, and that's one of those 50-cent theological words that we don't frequently talk about, and so we should clarify our terms here. It, its meaning is actually contained in the word. Atonement is simply what Christ has done so that we can be at one. You hear it, right? At one atone. At one with God. It's a payment. It's a reparation for our sake. The focus of the message for this morning is simply to look at holiness through the lens of the atonement. What did Jesus do for us on the cross so that 
we might live blameless, righteous, holy lives today. In short, what I want to do is to revisit and refresh and revive and perhaps even refine your understanding of the gospel, the good news of Christ's death on our behalf. I have a gospel message for you this morning. Now, there was a time in my life, if someone said that they have a gospel message for me, I would stop listening. See, I grew up in Independent Baptist Church in upstate New York, and I loved that church. It was a little dated. It had this forest green carpeting that probably could have been replaced, you know, that kind of thing. But, but it grounded me in the truths of the Christian faith, and it taught me great hymns that have withstood the test of time. And my family was in that church pretty much whenever the doors were open. Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday morning church, Sunday evening worship service, Wednesday, Wednesday evening prayer service, Monday evening Awana. And one of the distinctives of that church was that whenever the pastor would finish a sermon, he would step down out of the pulpit and then he would offer an invitation and say, whoever wants to come, and he'd give some sort of gospel description at that point, and then he'd stand there as we sang the final hymn and waited for people to come forward. And that happened time after time after time. And then we'd sing that song, and it felt like Just As I Am had like 67 verses or something like that, because it just would keep on going and going. And I would start to tune it out, not because I didn't believe it or agree with what he was saying, but rather I treated the gospel like a series of facts, information that I had learned already instead of the transforming power of God that it is. Christian, we should be refreshed by the gospel, recognizing it as the utterly undeserved privilege that it is. We never get past the gospel as if it's a key to a door that once we open the door, we no longer need that key anymore. No, it sustains us. We delve deeper into those life-changing realities of the gospel. While I was in college, I had a meal with uh, a pastor who was finishing up decades of ministry. And as an individual who was considering the possibility of ministry for his life, I wanted to understand how to do that. And so I, I asked him, how have you been faithful to your calling for this long time? What advice would you give someone who was at the beginning of it? And his advice was very simple. You preach the gospel to yourself every day. And if you can't do that, you find someone to preach it to you. We need to hear the gospel. Whether you are 8 or 80, don't tune it out. The hymn writer put it well. I love to tell this story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. We're in the book of Hebrews, and it was written to Jewish Christians. It's this winsome argument for the supremacy of Jesus over all. In the former times, Jesus spoke through prophets, but he now speaks in his Son, who is superior to all past revelation, because he is himself God. And here in chapter 10, he describes the superior achievements of the priestly work of Christ. In our passage this morning, the author is saying this, in the sufficient work of the Son, all that God wants has been achieved, and all that we need has been accomplished. Man, that's good. We should say that again. In the sufficient work of the Son, all that God wants has been achieved, and all that we need has been accomplished. 
We can see this in four ways this morning. First of all, Jesus has done all that is necessary in relation to sin. We didn't read it this morning, but if you look at the first 10 verses in that chapter, you'll see a description of the Jewish sacrificial system where year after year after year, the sacrifices were offered. They were an annual reminder of the sin of the people. Yet, when Jesus came, it says in verse 12, this priest offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. See, our problem is much greater than individual acts of sin. Our problem is that our wills consent to sin. This repetition of animal sacrifice points to the inadequacy with which the problem was dealt. Sacrifices were necessary, but they certainly weren't sufficient. You can imagine a child going to their parent and saying, do we really have to do this again? And yet they did, over and over and over. They longed for the one who could take care of it once and for all. Christ's sacrifice was different because it was commensurate with divine dignity. He came and took care of the problem. But how do we know that he came and took care of the problem? Well, it says it right here in this verse. He sat down. When I was in high school, I worked at Burger King because I was awesome. And, well, I had a pretty good work ethic. My, my, that was instilled in me by uh, my parents, my father especially, and not everyone who works at Burger King had that same perspective. And so... Um, Another recent hire was a little bit more lazy than I was, and so he was asking the manager if he could sit down while he worked. Well, of course he couldn't sit down. There was work to do. You can sit down when the work was done. Christ sat down because the work was done. This is so telling for us. I need no other sacrifice. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Our own efforts or some treasury of merit is not needed because Jesus has done everything that is necessary in relation to sin. Second, Jesus has done everything that is necessary in relation to God. Look at verse 12 again. Where does he sit? At the right hand of God. The satisfaction of God's wrath is the driving force of the atonement. If God was simply complacent about sin, there would be no need for satisfaction or conversion. Without the holiness of God, sin is just personal failure. It's a little mess up without any serious moral meaning at all. Our problem is not a lack of God consciousness or a need for purpose. Our problem is that God's wrath has been poured out upon mankind and we're wholly unable to placate it ourselves. Too frequently, we diminish the work of Jesus on our behalf, acting like he does less than he actually does. I like how the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it. He says this in his book, The Gagging of God. Many look to Jesus as the one who fixes marriages, ensures the American dream, cancels loneliness, gives us power, and generally makes us happy. He is portrayed that way primarily because in our efforts to make Jesus appear relevant, we have cast the human, human dilemma in merely contemporary categories, taking our cues from the perceived needs of our day. And here's the thing. 
Jesus does those things too. He really does. But when we truly consider the cross, Jesus' sacrifice paints a vastly different picture. I love how this hymn puts it. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. So I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place. I ask no sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no shame or loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. I grew up reading the Sunday comics, the, the truly educational section of the newspaper. And, and I, I loved reading things like uh, Peanuts. And, and uh, I saw this Peanuts cartoon recently that had these two sections. The first one, you have Schroeder holding up a sign saying, Christ is the answer. But behind him comes Snoopy with another sign that says, what was the question? We cannot go around saying Jesus is the answer without clearly defining the question. There needs to be a problem. Otherwise, the gospel makes no sense. Jesus did not come to satisfy our felt needs, though he does that as well. There's a story in Mark's gospel, chapter 2, where Jesus was teaching in a home and the crowd had gotten so large that it spilled out the front door. Friends of a handicapped man in the city heard of Jesus' ability to heal, and so they brought their friend to the home, but they couldn't squeeze in, and so they decided to go to the roof instead. They dug out an opening and lowered the man into the room, and Jesus looked at the man, saw his predicament, and said, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. Can't you see this? Don't you see the real problem here? Don't you see the issue? That's not the problem. I'm convinced that if we could talk to that guy right now, he would say after 2,000 years in the presence of God, he would have gladly lived the rest of his life as a cripple for the joy of spending eternity with his creator. Because Jesus had already done everything in relation to God. Third, Jesus has done everything in relation to Satan. It says in verse 13, since that time, Jesus waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Who's the enemy? Well, we can see it back in chapter 2, verse 14. Through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because of Jesus, the power of Satan is broken as to its ultimate effect, though it's not wiped out in terms of its existence. The devil cannot change the ultimate outcome. The game has been called. It is checkmate for Satan. He can move his pawns around just as much as he wants to, but it's ultimately of no use. How do you feel about Satan? Culture has some very uh, diverging perspectives on Satan. There was a television show called Lucifer a couple years ago that tried to humanize Satan a little bit. Or if you see depictions on things like SNL or Bill and Ted's or, or those kind of things, it uh, downplays Satan. On the other hand, when I was growing up, I read those Frank Peretti novels that talked about Satan. If any of you read those books, seen a couple nodding heads here. Those books scared me because they had a very 
dark perspective on Satan. Some people are too lax, but I think some people give Satan too much credit. C.S. Lewis referred to Satan as smutty face. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 to be on the alert for our opponent, Satan, who is a roaring lion, and it's right to do so, but it's also good to remember Satan's position. He is a chained lion, barking like a chained-up, mangy, junkyard dog. Satan has been chained to the cross of Christ. He can create a ferocious racket, but he is a defeated foe. Jesus has done everything in relation to Satan. So Jesus has done everything in relation to sin. He's done everything in relation to God. He's done everything in relation to Satan. Fourth, Jesus has done everything in relation to us. Verse 14 reads, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. It's a fascinating juxtaposition here. Perfect, yet being made perfect. Holy, yet being made holy. Complete, yet incomplete. Saved, yet being saved. And yet verse 15 tells us we have the highest of authorities on the matter, the Holy Spirit himself. We've been changed. There's now no conflict between our new hearts and the requirements for holy living. See, we're living in a time that says that you can be whatever you want, whether or not it's right or wrong, because you are truly yourself. Ethics gives us this call to become who we're not. Christian living is different. The call to become what God sees you as. You are holy. So become holy. See, that first holy there refers to how God sees us in relationship to him. And so calls us to live the way we are seen by him. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians 6. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This relationship is actually pretty similar to marriage. I had a few other girlfriends before I met my wife, Sarah, but when she placed this ring on my finger as a symbol of the vow I had made to her, everything changed. What was past was now gone. See, we make vows to God as well. We're now part of this new covenant where God has put his laws on our hearts and inscribed them on our minds. So we return to our initial conundrum that you see in chapter 12. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It speaks of the requirement that we have to even stand before God, but also makes our clear responsibility. See, I'm absolutely convinced that a holy life is the only evidence of saving faith in Jesus Christ. And on top of that, our actions are a witness to a watching world. So as Christians who are seen as holy by God, this is our journey now, the pursuit of holiness. It is God changing me. And the process of holiness is a long one, full of deconstruction and construction in our lives. It doesn't happen in a rush of emotion or a cataclysmic event. It's a day-by-day working out our salvation. By the Spirit's prompting and enabling, we must weep and repent and turn from our sins. The Westminster Catechism refers to the life of a believer as a continual and irreconcilable war. How do we do that? How do we tackle sins in our lives? 
Well, that's a topic for another day. That's a huge topic that we can't cover. But I have to give you one example because I love this example so much. Someone once told me that you tackle sins in your life the way a junior high girl tackles zits. You hear the blood-curdling scream from the bathroom, and you're worried that someone fell down and hurt themselves, and you start banging on the door. What's going on? Are you okay? Are you okay? And after a few minutes of stalling, she emerges from the bathroom with this red protrusion on her face, and she says, I have to get rid of this thing. I need to get rid of this thing. We tackle sin in our lives immediately. We tackle sin in our lives ruthlessly. And we tackle sin in our lives consistently. But once again, this pursuit of holiness is transformed by the gospel. Because of the gospel, a holy life is not seen as judgmental, unbending, as though it's accomplished by our own effort. Rather, it's seen as graciousness, pleasantness, beauty, a growing ability to resist temptation, and an increasing love for our fellow believers. It's not a list of things to do. It's a dynamic, attractive, wonderful thing where people should look at us and say, what is this? The gospel transforms our pursuit of holiness. Since Christ has already done all, what do we need to do to be marked by a holy devotion? so that we can honor God and people are drawn to him. Just three simple ideas. First of all, feeding on the word of God. The famous preacher D.L. Moody once held up his Bible and said, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. We need to be feeding on the word of God, reading, meditating, memorizing this book as an altogether reliable guide for our lives. Second, We need to be living in the fear of God. That's a much harder one. But the psalmist tells us, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared. I'm so happy to report that more than 100 people will be diving into a study of the Proverbs this fall in four different environments. We're we're going to be learning about how the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the reliable foundation for wisdom. But the sad reality is that not everyone who professes faith stays true to the end of the journey. Theirs was a faith that proved to be false. And it's a terrible thing to face the judgment of an almighty God. And that's why this third idea is so important. To be marked by holy devotion, we need to be resting in the grace of God. We must heed the warnings given to us, but we must also trust in the promises that are made to us. In verse 17, the author writes, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. See, Muslims base their eternity on a set of scales. Good deeds, bad deeds. If one outweighs the other, that's the hope of heaven. Christians are different. Eternity is based on the cross. And when we as Christians fail and come before God in repentance for what we have done, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Because he's hit the delete key on our sin and the greatest computer genius in the world couldn't get it back. We can rest in this grace so much better when we are meditating on that grace 
And this fall, I just want to point out that we're going to have three opportunities to do that. The first one is our fall sermon series. Starting next week, we're going to be diving into the Apostles' Creed, and it's going to tell us so much about our Creator God and our Saving Son and our indwelling Spirit and how all of this works for God's glory and our benefit. We're also going to have a core class this fall on Christian belief where we will be diving more systematically into the beliefs of Christianity, including an understanding of the gospel. And we'll be doing that at the 915 service. And if you have never been trained about how to take this gospel and tell other people about it, one more opportunity. We're going to have a workshop that does just that. We're going to teach you how to tell other people about this gospel. And that happens on October 1st. Three great opportunities to dive more deeply into the gospel this fall. And three simple ideas to help us be marked by holy devotion in light of the gospel. Feeding on the word of God, living in the fear of God, and resting in the grace of God. We want to live in the sanctifying work of God's spirit so that you can be sure of what has already been accomplished for you. Church, the way to holiness is not by reading a book. The way to holiness is not by uh, seven steps or simply working harder. The reliable foundation for holiness is the wonder of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We do well to pay attention to those who have followed in those same paths. William Carey is known today as the father of modern missions and perhaps has done more for the cause of missions work around the globe than anyone else in the history of Christianity, probably with the exception of Paul. He moved to India and poured out his life reaching the lost and worked on this Bengali translation of the Bible. His life is an example for us to follow regardless of our own vocation. But if you were to travel to India and see his tombstone, you would see a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. What a proper perspective to have. When we stand before God, if we're asked why we should be allowed into heaven, the answer is simple. You shouldn't. But because of the sufficient work of the Son, all that God wants has been achieved, and all that we need has been accomplished. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. The gospel provides the foundation to live life as God has called us to. One more story, and then I'll call it a day. The 19th century lawyer Horatio Spafford decided to take a vacation to Europe uh, with his family due to uh, work obligations. He sent his wife and his uh, four daughters ahead of him. But their ship was struck by another vessel, and all four daughters perished. His wife made it to Europe and sent a telegram back to Chicago with two words, saved alone. Spafford departed for Europe a week later, and it's said that that ship stopped over the very point, the very spot his four daughters perished. And so Spafford went down into his hold, into his room, and started writing these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. How could he do that? 
How could he write words like that after such a horrific tragedy? Well, we see how he did it based on the third verse. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The gospel provides a foundation for holiness because the gospel provides our ultimate holiness because of what Jesus does on our behalf. I'm expecting that the vast majority of people in this room have heard this before. And it's probably not new, and that's an absolutely wonderful thing because the gospel has moved into your life. But if you haven't heard this before, if this is something new, and if God is stirring in your heart today, please don't resist it. Allow God to change you. He does that. He has a habit of doing that, and he does it so well. I guarantee you that there are so many people who would be thrilled to talk with you about this gospel message. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor David, Todd, Darwin, Mike. We got lots of people around here. We'd be happy to talk with you about this because that's why we're here. The moment that we set aside the gospel and don't focus on it anymore is the moment that I quit because that's why we're here. We have to celebrate it for all its myriad benefits in our lives.